lavish love for sinful sons. Lavish love for sinful sons. And I want to emphasize that at the very beginning. I want you to watch how uh, what may be our emphasis throughout our study really should expand beyond just the prodigal. And, and to just, to, just to focus on the prodigal in the story isn't enough. We, re- we really need to see both of these sons as objects of the father's lavish love. And I want to unpack that for us as we move through these things together today. Now, Luke 15, verses 11 through 32, let's just begin with a bit of context. This is the third parable in a one parable unit breaking out in three. So Jesus is responding to the grumbling of the Pharisees because the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And he was receiving them. Um, he receives sinners and eats with them. Now, the word receives, I, I dug a little deeper on that. That word is not the way that you would receive a package from UPS by surprise, right? The, the, the doorbell rings. Oh, there's a package. I received a package. That's not how Jesus is receiving tax collectors and sinners. The kind of receiving this word denotes is anticipation, excitement, joy. It would be as if you were waiting at the door, looking out the window, and then you see him pull up, the door flings open, come, yes, the package is here. You hug the UPS man. You take the package, you come and rejoice, you call all your neighbors, the package is here. Let's celebrate. It's, it's that kind of word. It's that kind of display. Note the word all here. They were all drawing near. There is a revival of sorts that is moving and catching speed. It's snowballing through a community that has otherwise been completely cut off from Judaism, from the elite religious of the day. They were excluded completely, and now they have hope. Now there is a rabbi for them who is willing to enter into where they are at and call them to repent and teach them good news and celebrate the power of the gospel in their lives. Well, the Pharisees, they didn't like this. They grumbled. They thought Jesus was, was creating chaos in what they saw as necessary order in their religious practice. They hated him for it. So Jesus responds to their grumbling with three parables. We saw the first two last week, the lost sheep and the lost coin. Today is the greatest uh, of value, the lost son, the lost son. So let's just move into these verses and, and unpack them as we move. First, the prodigal's request. So Jesus begins now to share this story. He said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now, we have to reenact this a bit, okay? If you are in the audience and Jesus is telling this story and you hear him finish that sentence, there is a collective gasp that would move through the audience. Let me read that again and then you can help me with this. We're going to recreate this experience, okay? There was a man who had two sons. The younger said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Exactly. Scandalous, 
Who does this young man think he is? How dare he say that to his father? What in the world? I mean, it would have just been unthinkable. The father responded by dividing his property between them. That would have drawn another gasp. Yeah, that wasn't quite as good as the first one. <laughs> we're, we're catching on. Most fathers in this day would have commanded a response. You rebellious, ungrateful son, get back out there and keep doing your chores. How dare you say such a thing? Now, why is that so offensive? Let's figure this out a little bit. First of all, you have a father and you have two sons. Now, there may be other family members. Certainly, there's more people than just these three. But these are the focus of the story that Jesus is telling. We live in a day here that is an agrarian society. Your agriculture is your wealth, right? How do you measure that? Land, crops, and cattle or livestock, right? That is the wealth that you accumulate. This father has worked many, many years and he has accumulated what seems to be a significant amount of property. Also remember this, property in Israel is a big deal. If you're a Jew and you own land, that's not a small thing, right? We're talking the promised land, all of the history here. So it's a huge thing to have an inheritance that is divided out, and, and as part of that, you are receiving part of the wealth of the land. You're given a portion of that property. He has two sons, which means the firstborn son would get uh, two-thirds of his property upon his death, and the secondborn would get half of that, which would be one-third, okay? So two-thirds, one-third is the divvy out that is coming. The problem is this request comes before the father is even sick. He's not dead yet. He's still living. And this foolish young man, Maybe in his teens, he gets to thinking, you know what? I'm, I'm sick of waiting for this old guy to die. I want what's mine. I want the land. I want it now. And he has the gall to go to his dad's face and tell him, give me what's mine. This is basically what he's saying to, to his dad. I want my share, not you. I, I, I wish you were dead. That's basically what he said to his dad. His concern for any relationship with his father is, is, is so far gone that he's willing to so deeply wound and offend and hurt his dad with words that are mind-blowing for any child to ever say to a parent, I, I wish you were dead. Now the Pharisees and scribes, they would have been falling all over the place at the scandal of this story as it began. Who would ever say that? This son, he needs discipline, not the inheritance. But the father gives him his portion. The son displays a hard heart. He displays an unleashing of, 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 of care or concern for any appropriate interaction with his father at all, any, any sense of respect or boundary or filter. He just says it. 
It's a painful reality. The, the other thing to consider is you don't, you don't get here overnight. This son has had an increasingly hardened heart for a while. His relationship with his father is such that he has so little care and little value upon that relationship. He just wants what he wants. Now, what's interesting, too, is he, he has a yearning, a longing for something more. He wants something even more than the land. We're going to see that. There's something far darker at work here. It's not that he's just saying, Dad, you know, I think I can do this. I, you know, I, I, I know typically I'm supposed to wait till you're, you're dead and gone, but I'd like to really give it a shot and kind of, you know, make my own thing and, and, and do some farming, right? It's not that at all. Now let's consider the prodigal's freedom. Verse 13. Verse 13. Uh, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Wow. Okay, so not many days later, Jesus, again, he's just telling the story. He wants to give little details. It wasn't like he, he, you know, made a little farm and made it work for a while. No, he took that portion of the inheritance that he was given, and, and he cashed that thing out. He sold that property. When he, when he says he gathered it together, he, he liquidated his assets. The crops, the flocks, and the land that he was given, he turned into cash. And then he took that cash with him, and he left. He hit the door. Wow. So you have uh, a cashing out of property. Just put yourself, for instance, in the father's shoes or even the older brother's shoes. This is your family land. Generations have lived here and worked this land. Now all of a sudden, these weird strangers are, are walking in. Some of them are moving in. They're, that's the land that was yours. And now it's sold. And the crops are gone. Who knows who the people are who are, it's not like the son is making wise choices. He's probably just squandering, even in the selling of this property, probably getting poor money for that which he's selling. And to whom is he selling? He doesn't care. He just wants the cash. It'd be like a quick exchange at a pawn shop. Just give me the cash, man. I don't care. Just take it. How much do I get for this? Now, The distance that was there emotionally between the father and son is made visible in his departure from his homeland. For a faithful Jew to go to a far country is never a good thing, right? We remember the book of Ruth when they went over to Edom. Uh, That was a mistake. Stay in the land. He says, no, I don't want to stay in the land. I want freedom. I'm going to a far off country. And it says that he lived recklessly. He, he squandered his property. The cash that he had, he squandered it in reckless or loose living. Sinful living. This would be like a, uh, a, a, a stint at, at, at Vegas. Okay? He went to Vegas with all the cash that he had collected, and he sinned it up. He lived large. He walked in the room, 
followed by the entourage, right? All of a sudden, this rich little punk kid shows up. And everybody wants to be his friend. Why? He's got money. And he's dealing it out. 100 bucks here, right? Hey, tip, how about 100 there? And all of a sudden, he's got an entourage. And, and you know what? Every time he says a joke, people laugh. Not because it's funny, but because they want what he has, money. He's the center of attention. Oh, this freedom is great. It's so awesome. I have prestige and power and influence. I've got all this money. What a mirage, friends. Food, wine, women. Later on in the text, we learn that he squandered this in part with prostitutes, just giving himself to whatever pleasure he chose. Live for the moment, right? Just follow your heart. And it helps when you've got a lot of cash to make all your dreams come true. Oh man, this guy, he took the lie. Hook, line, and sinker. He is all in. This is a perceived freedom. Friends, this is not freedom. Freedom to every passion or whim of your inclination is slavery, not freedom. It's slavery. (laughs) Freedom is when you have inclinations to sin and say in the power of Christ, no, I don't have to do that. I'm no longer a slave. This young man is enslaved and he thinks he's free. I was thinking about this. Someone I was studying said it this way. I love it. Running from God is like skydiving without a parachute. Okay? It's great, right? You, you open the door. You know what? I'm sick of this accountability. I'm sick of this, this home and all of this stuff. I am out of here. You jump out of the plane. Oh, it feels great. I'm so free. I can do somersaults and I can do this. I can pretend like I'm sleeping and all these fun things. Well, I am falling, but we'll deal with that later because I'm free. I'm free. Now, the scary thing is you can make a ton of money when you're free falling. You can have success. You can have a lot of fun, quote unquote. And all the while, you're falling, plunging, racing to the ground. And at some point, you've got to ask the question, where's the ripcord? What do I do? And you realize, wait a second, I don't have a parachute. I thought I was free, but I'm actually plunging to my death. That is exactly what this son has chosen. He jumped out of the plane, embraced his freedom, and then he very quickly realized the ground is coming up quick, and I'm dead meat. Watch how this unfolds, his misery. Now, just a, f- a few verses about his, his launching out, and then misery. Just boom, it hits. Verse 14, And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need, and So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country uh, who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So we have a very significant turn of events. First of all, he spends all the money. 
this young man is a fool. He is a fool. He squandered the precious, hard-earned work of his father for a mirage, and it's gone. But it's, it's worse than that because the famine arose. Now, Jesus puts these details in. You've got to just ask the question, why did, he, why did he add the famine? It's bad enough if he's on his own. Jesus is telling the story, and he says, and, and a famine arose. Well, who is the one sovereign over famines? God is. God is doubling down on this young man in rebellion. And he twists in the screws to make it that much more difficult to show him his misery is chosen. This is so much worse. This is not freedom. A famine arose, which means everybody began to take care of themselves. And he has no money. And he's in a foreign land. Where are you going to go? Well, he goes to a citizen of that country, which means a Gentile. Okay, now, get ready. We're going to have a gasp here soon. Okay? He goes to a Gentile. And it says, <laughs> almost, get ready. It's coming. He hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. Oh, now, this is insane, unthinkable. If you are a Jew, first of all, your distinction is one of the most important things to you as your identity as a Jew. You are not a Gentile. You're a Jew, and you are to be distinct in obeying the Lord and standing out. And I mean, all of the things like circumcision and obedience to the Lord and, and walking in his favor and his law, a lot of that has to do with, with the call of God, be holy, be apart from the world. He has to attach himself to this Gentile in such a way he's basically a slave, an indentured servant. He has no money. He has to work. And the Gentile says, I've got just the job for you, a Jewish boy. I've got some pigs. Oh, not the pigs. Anything but the pigs. The most unclean, detestable animal. How far this boy has fallen. So he's sitting amongst the pigs, and he's thinking about his choices. Does it feel like freedom now? Was it worth it? Was it wise? What have I done? Miserable consequences. It's really an unthinkable situation he finds himself in. In fact, if you, if you look at this, he's bound to a Gentile. He's feeding the swine. He's longing for the swine's food. That would be these pods, okay? They, they feed the pigs these, these pods. They, they may work for pigs, but even in the most impoverished of areas, to eat the swine's food was, was seen as the most horrific uh, misery of poverty. These are not as tasty as your green beans from your backyard. They're mealy and awful. And he's staring at this pig's food, jealous about what the pig's eating, and thinking, I was eating caviar about a month ago. Now look at me. How the tables have turned. John Piper said so well. I love what he said here. 
When we break our attachment with God, we will end up attached to another. And that attachment will be slavery, not sonship. It may be drugs or alcohol or illicit sex or an employer or a spouse or a sport or a hobby or television or a lake cabin or a computer or books. You you fill in the blank. If we break loose from God, we will be attached to another. I'll tell you why. Because we have been created by God to be attached to God. That soul craving is only satisfied in our delighting in, worshiping in, and walking with God. When we break from that, that hole is like a giant vacuum in our soul. And we could stuff anything possible in it, and it won't satisfy. He goes on to say this, You and I were made to be filled with God. And if we run from Him, if we take our earthly little inheritance of time and money and energy and use it to attach ourselves to other things than God, it won't matter matter whether we are worth $9 billion dollars Our future will be swine food for all eternity. That's the misery Jesus describes when we run from the Father's house. Do you see that? Do you see what he's saying? You want to understand what idolatry is? It's anything that you attach yourself to other than God. You look to this to satisfy your soul? It's an idol if it's not God himself. And friends, our hearts are idol factories. We are so cool. We can turn anything into an idol because we're wired to worship. And we are only truly satisfied when we're worshiping God. This young man made a terribly foolish decision to run from home, to leave his father's house. The intimacy of that relationship, the, 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 the satisfying reality of sonship, he traded for what? Swine. Hmm. Now the return of the prodigal. Oh, praise the Lord for this turning point in the story. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's Hired servants have more than enough bread, but, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him. Now listen, I will say to him these words. Father. You think the tone there is different than the first time he said those words? Father. Oh, Father. I have sinned against heaven. Right? He's speaking. My sin is against God. And before you, I have sinned. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. I think what he's seen here is, is the, to be near my father, I would, I would eat the crumbs that fall off his table. If that's all I get, it's more than I've got here with the pigs. comes to himself. He, he comes to his senses. This is the turn. This is the change. And we know that left to ourselves, we can't do this, can we? It's not in us to come to ourselves, to come to our senses. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. 
This is the, the effect of finding, the finding of the shepherd. Wake up, O sleeper. Turn from your sin. This is repentance, friends. Repentance. Now, just a few notes on the words that he speaks here. It's an honest ownership of his guilt. He's being honest. He's not being the victim, right? Oh, I'm only this way because you and you. And it's really my dad's fault. It's really my brother's fault. I'm, I'm all just the victim here. You cannot repent until you own your own sin. Yeah, sure, we can be hurt by the sin of others. But our greatest problem is not what others have done to us. It is what we have done with God. He is humbled and broken. Listen to these words. I'm unworthy. I I am not worthy. That is an honest assessment of the damage and the consequences he has done. Sin carries consequences. Some of those will linger even when there's forgiveness. Some of us know that all too well. You can be forgiven and still go to jail. Unworthy, undeserving. I just want to go home. I just want to go home. I'm sick of living in this foreign land, watching these pigs eat. Nobody here cares about me. I just want to go home. You ever felt that? Just, I'm so sick of this life, this, this rebellion, this, this living for me. I just want to go home. I want this weight on my shoulders to be removed. And Jesus says to the sinners and the tax collectors, come to me, all who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right? Come. Come, sinners. Repent of your sins. Find forgiveness in life. Now, listen to the Father's love. Spectacular reunion here. Verse 20. He arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Is that expected? That would be a gasp, I I imagine, as well, through the crowd. You don't have to do it. You you did a great job. There would have been a bit of a gasp, I think, that moves through. What What kind of shameful father would respond this way to this foolish son? I'll tell you what the Pharisees would have done. They would have backed up dusted off the robes and waited, stone-faced. And when that son came crawling up on his knees and started his speech, they'd point the finger and say, unworthy, not okay. You broke the rules. You don't measure up. The same disdain that they had shown the tax collectors and sinners. That's what they expected to hear from this father. Not this. Listen to all the things that he did. You see see the heart of the father in this response. First of all, he sees the son returning from a long way off, which means he's watching 
and looking and longing. He thinks the son is dead. He's, he hasn't heard. He doesn't know what's going on. He sees the son, and he, what? He feels compassion. He sees his son from a distance, and his heart is soft. It's not hard. And then, in a very undignified way, he, this is an older man. And in a Jewish culture, older men, they walk like this. Slow, purposeful. You will rarely see an older man in a Jewish culture run. But this man reached down, pulled up his robe so that he could run, and he full out sprinted to his son from a long way off, right? He was winded by the time he got there. Everybody who saw the old man run would have stopped, dropped everything. What's, what's going on? Why is he running? This would have caused a scene at the plantation. He's overjoyed. He embraces his son. He embraces him. He's dirty. His son has been working with him. His son stinks. And yet he kisses him. He goes to where he's at. He meets him in his mess. He embraces him and he kisses him. He doesn't say, whoa, you reek, clean up, and then we'll talk. No, he's right there in the mess. Isn't that Jesus? Isn't that how he meets us? And the father absorbed the shame of his son. All of the shame from all of the, the co-workers, all the laborers. Everybody knows what he's done. This act of intimacy and love, embrace, is an absorbing of that shame. He takes it all on himself. And then the son speaks. This is the planned speech. He's got it. He wants to, he wants to communicate how sorry he is. He begins into his speech as they embrace tears, I'm sure. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I, he doesn't even finish it. He's got more to say. We know because he's rehearsed it. There's more here. The father cuts him off. He said to his servants, quickly, bring the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand, put shoes on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Hmm. He got out the words that he intended, at least part of them. He owned his guilt he expressed his sorrow, his grief. He, he established a confession, but it di he didn't even finish it. And forgiveness was granted. The robe, the ring, the shoes, this is full status restoration. Right? He is clothed cleanly in the best of robes, not just a, a hired hand robe, but a child of the father robe. He has been restored. He has the reputation given in the ring, the signet ring. This is a, a serious 
deal. It means he has the reputation as the son of the father. And he is esteemed with honor. Think how dirty his feet would be. He wasn't allowed to go around barefoot like one of the hired hands. He was given shoes. They cleaned his feet up. They put shoes on his feet. The son of mine is back. And the celebration occurs. Now remember the celebration. The lost sheep found, restored, brought home. Celebrate. Invite the neighbors. The lost coin. Lost. Searched for until it was found. Celebrate. Invite the neighbors. The son. Kill the fatted calf. Right? Spare no expense. We have every reason to celebrate. Jesus eating with the tax collectors and sinners. There's reason to celebrate here. The father. Every time a sinner repents. Before the angels in heaven, celebration. We have not a reluctant Savior. He is a celebrating Savior. Once dead, now live. I once was lost, but now I'm found. It's amazing, Grace. It's amazing. Love, mercy, forgiveness, grace, sonship, intimacy, provision, home, the list goes on and on and on. The prodigal came home by grace restored to his father. Now imagine the stories they would tell in the years ahead. Imagine what this would be like to sit with us. So you think he cherished his father now? Think of the love he saw in this man. He couldn't see it before he was blinded by sin, selfishness, pride. You strip all that away. And now he knows where the true treasure was. It was never in the land or the cattle or the crops. It was in the Father the whole time. Tax collectors and sinners have reason to rejoice. Now, let's talk about the other brother. The brother's belligerence. The brother's belligerence. Now, the older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. Okay, first of all, we've got to try to figure out why is he out so far away? What's he doing? Well, I think there's a statement piece there. There's some distance here between the father and this older son. It's not spelled out 100%, but you get the sense that there's a, if, if the father was going to have a celebration, the oldest son, the firstborn, would certainly be consulted, not in this, say, in, in this case. So he finds out by hearing music and dancing. There's something wrong here between this father and his oldest son. He called one of his servants and, 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 and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your, your brother has come home. And your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Wow. Now, is that good news for the older brother? Is he going to celebrate or is he going to grumble? And I use the word grumble on purpose. Who's been grumbling here? 
the Pharisees and the scribes, they grumble. This older brother is the scribes and Pharisees. And Jesus is telling this parable ultimately not about the prodigal son. It's about the older brother. This, this story really is all about the older brother because he's telling it to the Pharisees and scribes. And this is them. This, that, who am I in this story? That's me. I'm the older brother. That's what he wants them to see. They're grumbling. Listen to his response. He was angry. Angry. And he refused to go in. The father came out and entreated him. Now, again, there should be a gasp that hits us there. What? What? What father goes out to entreat a son to plead? Oh, please come in, son. That's scandalous and shameful behavior, they would say but not with this father. This father is willing to reach out even to the angry son, the belligerent one. He's patient with him, just as Jesus is telling them this parable. It's a display of entreating them. Guys, stop crumbling. Come join the celebration. But he answered his father, he doesn't address him as father. That's significant. He doesn't begin the sentence with father. He just says, look, look, these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Hmm. That kind of sound like something made like the rich young ruler. All these I have kept. It's a pretty high assessment. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with who? With you? No. Why would I do that? With my friends. You see the break. There's a disconnect here. We're learning more about this brother's heart. But when this son of yours, he won't even call him brother anymore. He counts his brother as dead. When this son of yours... Now, I also hear a bit of an echo of Genesis 3. The woman who you made gave it to me, and I ate. Maybe this is your fault. This son of yours, by the way, he's your son. He devoured your property with prostitutes, and you killed a fatted calf for him. Do you feel the, the hatred, the bitterness... I mean, anger, bitterness, begrudging service, jealousy. You get the sense that this older brother is just enduring day after day after day being the good one. I'm just trying to be the good son. My brother does whatever he wants. Just open sin. And here I am, just grumbling away, doing my chores. Is that obedience? Is that love for the Father? That's religion. That's religion, not relationship. Just do what you're supposed to do. I never disobeyed. You never gave me. Here's the problem with, uh, well, let me ask the question first. If it was so bad, why didn't he leave, right? If, if, if he's just, oh, I'm just slaving away every day. You're such a terrible father and I'm always having to obey you and you never give me anything. Well, 
He didn't leave because he wanted his share. He wanted his inheritance. That's the two-thirds. That's what he's waiting for. He's just waiting for him to die. Which is weird because that sounds eerily familiar to the younger son. And so we begin to discern the hearts of both of these sons are sinful. One is blatant sin. The other is somewhat refined. But it's both sin. I performed. I deserve. I am worthy. He is not. I want my share. Basically what he's saying. I'm not going to come into your party. I'm not going to celebrate you enjoying the return of a son who has is, who is so uh, squandered our property when you don't give me a thing. Hmm. The problem with religion or good works is that if we're not careful, we begin to think of ourselves as deserving. Now, Christians, we can fall into this, okay? But certainly out in the world, well, you, I, I did some good things today. Well, good maybe on a human level, but apart from Christ, we can't do good. You are unable not to sin if you're not a Christian. All that you do is done ultimately out of the wrong motive. Now, it may be a good, you know, worldly thing, but at the end of the day, you're not a good person because you're not doing things for the glory of God which is the standard of all good works. And if it's not done in faith for the glory of God, then it's sin. That's the, what the Bible says. So even the good that we do on a human plane, good, quote-unquote, on that level, can somehow begin to kind of stack up like the Apostle Paul. Hey, I kept the law, right? I, I obeyed, and, and I did my chores. I, I never rebelled. I'm not like, a, I'm not like one of those over there, right? The Pharisee that prayed, thank you that I'm not like this guy. Why is he saying that? Well, because he's looking at stuff he's done or not done. And he's feeling good about himself. How do you become self-righteous? Through good works. That's how. Through doing stuff. That's what that's what the ground or the, the layering of self-righteousness is. I feel good about me because of the things I do. And that means I'm a good person. Now, if you were to ask most people on the street, are, are you a good person? What do you think they're going to say? Yeah, I'm, I'm a good person. Here's what I wish every Christian would respond with. You ask a Christian, are you a good person? Here's a great response. No. I'm not a good person. There's nothing good in me. Verse. The only good that's in me is the good that's been accomplished by Jesus Christ. And my joy in all that I do is to point to Him. Any good that I accomplish in His name for His glory, it's all about Him. Good works will lead us to self-righteousness, which will cause us to begin to say things like, I deserve at least a goat, Dad. I mean, come on. Haven't you noticed all the good things? I, I'm the good son. It is the trap the Pharisees had fallen into. 
Think of this. Jesus is entreating them with this parable. Come into the celebration. Come on in. Come in, guys. Enough with the self-righteousness. You guys need saving too. You're sinners. Don't you see your heart? It's just as hard. Repent. Repent. And join the celebration. The Father's invitation, verses 31 and 32. We'll close with this. The Father responds to His Son's angry lecture of Him. And He said to Him, Son, you're always with me. All that I have, uh, all, all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And then that's the end. That's the end of the parable. He stops just right there. This is a display of amazing grace for self-righteous sinners. Jesus is, is entreating these Pharisees and scribes to come in, and, and, and he does so through this story. A gracious father, to respond to the angry brother, instead of lecturing him and putting him in his place, he said, listen, I love you. I love you too. Come, come. Put away with the grumbling and the anger. Here's the question. How did the story end? If we were going to finish this ending based upon what we know of their response, how would it end? Did the older brother, i.e. the scribes and Pharisees, repent of their self-righteousness and embrace the Father's gracious, gracious invitation and join the celebration? Did they? They didn't. They didn't. They hated Jesus all the more. So we could finish the story by saying this. The older brother pulled out a knife and killed the gracious father for shaming the family. That's basically what they did. This gracious, patient invitation to the scribes and Pharisees, come, guys, you need a Savior. Come into the celebration. Their response is, crucify him. Crucify him. Kill him. I've had enough of this. It is a tragic ending, but friends, in the wisdom and plan of God, their hatred of that invitation accomplished the very salvation of the tax collectors and sinners and self-righteous sinners who ran to him in faith. And all of us here as well. It was the plan of God that Jesus would be killed and lay down his life and take upon himself all of our shame and guilt and pay it in full so that we could be forgiven. The sinners. It's quite a story. Now, in response this morning, I just want to ask this question. What category do you fall in today? Now, this sermon needs to especially be heard by church people. Church people need to listen close. If you're here and you're saying, oh boy, I sure wish someone else would hear this sermon. 
you may be the older brother. I don't, I don't need this. I mean, I, I'm, I'm good to go. I'm not a bad person. Be careful. An honest assessment for the believer who sees himself is and should only be, I am unworthy. I don't deserve this grace, this love. I don't deserve it, but I delight in it, and I trust Jesus for all of my days. Nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. That's it. That's the story of the Christian. That's it. One of my favorite responses when people ask, how are you doing, is better than I deserve. That's a great conversation starter. Better than I deserve. Are you amazed by grace? Does the grace of God amaze you? Oh, Christians, it should. It should. He saved me. Me. Let's pray. Father, the one who has shown such lavish love to both sons. Oh, Lord, you're so good. You're so incredibly good and loving. You, you, have, you have given this love undeserving to the rebels, maybe the, the public and obvious and blatant sinners, and also to the subtle and refined and secret sinners. We thank you that you delight in the repentance of all kinds of sinners. We thank you that you have chosen to save us from uh, the pit of our own choosing, our own mess. Lord, we have, we have rebelled against you, all of us. We've all turned aside. We've all jumped out of the plane without the chute. And our only hope is Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for all prodigals here today who may be finding themselves in the midst of a free fall choosing willfully to walk away from you. Now, they may be here, and it may not be obvious, but Lord, you know their hearts, and they know. They know what they're choosing. They know what they're doing. I pray that you would turn them home. Turn them to your loving, open arms. Even today, Lord, just stir their hearts to repent of their sin and run to you. And Father, for any of us here who know you and have, have fallen into this, this self-righteous trap, oh, strip that away from us. Remind us again of the gospel that we delight in. Help us to sing the forever song, Amazing Grace. It's amazing that you love us. And we love you. And we will sing your praise forever. In Jesus' name, amen.